forget, next Sunday night, we won't be having our Bible study. You can be seated. We won't be having our Bible study. Instead, we're going to have a baptism on the back lawn. Hopefully, it'll be a little warmer next Sunday night. We'll have a baptism, and we'll also uh, be eating tacos. Baptism and tacos. Tacos for Mexico next Sunday night. You'll have an opportunity. The tacos will be free, but... Uh, if you want to make a donation next Sunday night for the tacos, all of the proceeds will go toward the mission trip that an adult group is taking to Mexico this coming sun, summer. So uh, that'll be going on next Sunday night. We'll have a great time of fellowship and a, a great baptism. And um, So I encourage you to be here next Sunday night out on the back lawn. And then the Sunday after that, we'll be back uh, here for the Bible study. And then the following Sunday is the weekend of our pastors and church leaders conference. And so because we're having an evening service on that Wednesday and on that Thursday, we'll not be having a Sunday night service that first Sunday in May. So keep that in mind. Well, tonight we're in Matthew chapter 17. If you'll turn in your Bible there, we left off last time, I think in verse 23. And so tonight we're going to pick up in verse 24. A man pays a luxury tax on his billfold, an income tax on the stuff he puts in it, a sales tax on whatever he takes out, and an inheritance tax if there's anything left in it when he dies. Well, it's income tax time again. The tax filing deadline is right around the corner. You have just two more days to mail off your 1040 forms. I'm not going to wait to the last minute this time. I think I'm going to do it on Monday instead of Tuesday. Have you ever noticed that the timing of the tax deadline is, is to me, strategic? April the 15th. Why April the 15th? Well, it's halfway between April Fool's Day and May Day. Think of the calculations that occur in the month of April. It starts out, this has got to be a joke. And it ends up, May Day, May Day, I'm in big trouble. This year, April the 23rd, is Tax Freedom Day. You know what that is. The average American works 74 days to pay his federal income tax and 39 days to pay his state and local tax. That means that most of us are working for the government from January the 1st until April 23rd of this year. Jesus, though, didn't put near as much work into paying his tax. For in the final section of Matthew 17, Jesus pays his tax in a most unusual way. Verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter said, Yes, he does. In ancient Israel, the temple was the meeting place between God and the people. And there were expenses involved in its operation and its upkeep. Under the law of Moses, its needs were provided through a temple tax. According to Exodus 30, verse 13, every Jewish male, 20 years old and older, was required to pay the amount of half a shekel. It was a tax. The tax was collected in the spring of the year, this was in the fall, so basically Jesus was late on his payment. Verse 25, when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated saying, Well, what do you think, Simon? 
It's kind of funny when the collection agent asked Peter if his master paid taxes, he sort of snapped in defense of Jesus. Well, of course he pays taxes. I mean, Peter was saving face here. He says, you know, he's, Jesus is no deadbeat, irresponsible, tax evader. That's my Lord there. But then the more he thought about it, he, he started to wonder, Jesus, do you really pay the temple tax? And Jesus said, what do you think? So Jesus asks him, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from their daughters, from their strangers. Peter said to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Taxes supported the royal family. I mean, the king and his son didn't pay taxes. People paid taxes to support the king. Likewise, Jesus was son of God. He was king of the Jews. He was owner of the temple. He wasn't supposed to pay taxes. He wasn't required to pay taxes. The people were obligated to pay a tax to him. Technically, he was off the hook. Nevertheless, lest we offend. Technically, he didn't have to pay taxes, but he did. Evidently, there were some battles for Jesus that were just not worth fighting. One of my favorite statements goes like this. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? Not every cause is worth the sacrifice. Not every hill is worth dying to win. Here Jesus takes a pragmatic approach. Trying to prove that he was exempt from the taxes would accomplish very little. For the moment, he would just be better off paying the tax. But he does so in a way that Matthew will never forget. Jesus tells Peter, Go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Here is the fish story of all fish stories. Peter obeys. He drops a hook in the water. He, he pulls up a fish. He opens its mouth and bingo, a full shekel. By the way, this is uh, St. Peter's fish that we eat over in the restaurant there on the Sea of Galilee. And, and if you'll notice there's a little coin stuck right in the fish's mouth. Hate to tell you this, but we actually planted it there just for the picture's sake. Hate to burst your bubble. Anyway, Peter found a full shekel in the fish's mouth. The temple tax was a half a shekel, so there was enough for both Peter and Jesus to pay their taxes. This was a miracle of timing. Years earlier, someone had dropped a shekel into the lake. Months earlier, the coin had been swallowed by a fish. Weeks earlier, that fish had been swimming in a lake 14 miles long, seven and a half miles across, 200 feet deep. One day, it just happens to swim to the shore at the very same time that Peter drops his hook into the water. Boom! And he hits the hook. What are the odds of that timing? God's providence arranges the miracle. And it all goes to prove that Jesus is a handy guy to have around, isn't he? Need to feed 5,000 people, have a big dinner party? Just hand Jesus a sack lunch. Have an issue that's hemorrhaging? Reach out and grab his garment. Delinquent in your taxes? Just go down to the lake and catch a fish. Here's good news for April 15th tax filers. Jesus loves you so much, he even cares about delinquent taxes. 
With two days left, I suggest you listen to what Jesus tells you to do. I'll see you down at the fishing hole at Stone Mountain Lake. Isn't it interesting? Of all the four gospel writers, only Matthew mentions the story. Why is that? <laughs> Matthew was a former tax collector. He was an IRS agent. Paying taxes was his specialty. And Matthew had never seen taxes paid quite like this. College football has its Heisman. The NFL has its Maxwell Award. Hockey has its Hart Memorial Trophy. These are all trophies that honor each sport's MVP. Sadly, the idea of recognizing the best, the most valuable, doesn't stop in sports. Sadly, it runs over into the church. Here, too, we clamor for recognition. We desire to stand out from the crowd. It's more than just wanting to do our best, a good thing. Sometimes it's wanting to be the best, a bad thing. Moving up the pecking order isn't just reserved for school or work or sports. Sadly, it often occurs in church. In fact, selfish desire even raised its ugly head among these very first disciples. The disciples go to Jesus and they want him to name an MVP. Chapter 18 begins, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Obviously the disciples had been arguing this point. <laughs> they probably each thought that they were greatest. Finally, they want Jesus to end the debate. Jesus, name an MVD, a most valuable disciple. You know, when you think about it, this is like praising the brilliance of the moon, all the while ignoring the sun. You know, the moon has no brightness of its own. It's a mere reflection, and so it is with us. The Christian isn't the source of the good he exhibits. He or she is just a reflection of the glory of Jesus at work in, in their heart. Well, Jesus sets them straight here in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I picture here Jesus sort of utilizing some high drama he walks around the disciples as if he's about to pick the cream of the crop. The disciples get all stirred up. Their pulses start to race. They, they're, they're getting all pumped up. They're beaming with pride. I know it's going to be me. The disciples are all working on their acceptance speeches. When Jesus walks right past them, and he walks over and he picks up Dennis the Menace. And he says, here is your MVP. Once there was an old man, he entered a toy store, and he stood there gazing at the electric train as it rumbled around the track and, and spun in circles. With a gleam in his eye, he motioned to the clerk. He pointed to the train, and he says, I'll take one of those. The sales girl, she responded, My, I bet your grandson will really enjoy that. To which the older fellow replied, You know, I think you're right. I better take two. You know, there's a famous line that goes, you're only as old as you think. And Jesus here says that if you want to be great for God, you have to be converted to a childlike faith. A little child is what? A child is sincere. And a child is sensitive. And a child is simple. 
And a child is also submissive. An adult, on the other hand, is two-faced and too calloused and too complicated and too conceited. Hey, when it comes to faith, we need to turn back the clock. We need to all return to a childlike faith. Jesus says, unless you have a faith as a little child, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. A child becomes Jesus' MVP. Verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Hey, to Jesus, both the kindness of a child and kindness toward a child was a sign of spiritual greatness. You know, kids today are sometimes viewed as a nuisance. But in the ancient world, it was even worse. Infants were left for dead. Sometimes they were sold into slavery. Parents had total control and authority over their kids, even to the point of harming them if they desired. You know, Jesus and Christianity changed the world's attitude toward children much the way it did the pagan perspective toward women. Theologian B.B. Warfield once wrote, Childhood owed as much to the gospel as did womanhood. Jesus' love for kids shaped Western civilization's attitudes towards childhood. Verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is starting to sound a little bit like the Jewish mafia here. Mess with one of these children and you'll go swimming in a concrete wetsuit. That's what he tells them. He says, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. This word offense literally means to throw off course. To throw off course. He says, woe to the man who throws a little child off course. I think of this verse not only when I hear of a pedophile or a drug dealer, or a cult member trying to recruit a kid. But I also think of this verse when I hear of an educator who tries to attack a child's faith and throw them off course. Walter, a college professor who tries to rattle a student's faith with atheistic propaganda. Woe to the movie producer or the music promoter who wants to corrupt our kids. Woe to these people. It would be better if a millstone were hung around their neck and thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. You know, a fallen world, in a fallen world, wickedness will inevitably take place, but Jesus says, woe to the wicked person in the world who seeks to spread this perversion. God's judgment can and will be severe. And that's why we need to deal severely with our sin. He says, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. It'd be better to be in heaven with a patch than to have 20-20 vision in hell. You know, it's sad that over the years people have taken these words literally. But I hope you understand that when Jesus says cut off a hand or pluck out an eye, he's using what we call hyperbole. It's emphasis by exaggeration. We know Jesus didn't mean to be taken literally. If there's lust in your heart, you can lust with 
one eye just as easy as you can two eyes. I mean, if there's greed in your life, you can chop off both hands and you'll steal with your nubs. Jesus is telling us here, identify your sin. Whatever it is that's causing you to sin, your hand, your foot, your eye, the way you go home from work, a friend, a neighbor, a woman you've gotten too close to. Whatever it is that's causing you to sin, identify it. Deal decisively with it. Get rid of it from your life. To overcome addictive sin, we have to take drastic action and do whatever it takes. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now here's one of those places in Scripture where we get the notion of guardian angels. Apparently, each child of God has an angel that has been dispatched to protect them. And when you harm a child, a child of God, especially an innocent child, you're going to face both God's judgment in heaven and angelic retribution on earth. So you better beware. Verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? If he's just a businessman, no. He's not going to bother to do that. But if he's a shepherd, if he truly cares and loves the sheep, he will. And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What a wonderful parable. And in this parable, we have at least three characteristics of God's love. First, notice his love is unconditional. The shepherd never looks at why the one lost sheep went astray. He just goes after him. He loves him. Second, God's love is individual. Notice he leaves the 99 to seek the one. You know, if all that mattered to God was numbers, he wouldn't worry about one single lousy sheep. God cares about each of us individually. It's been said God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. Finally, God's love is emotional. Notice that when the shepherd returns, when he finds the sheep, and he returns with the sheep, he doesn't scold him, he doesn't flog him, he doesn't skin him, he doesn't turn him into lamb chops. What does he do with the sheep? He rejoices over the sheep that now he's been found. And God rejoices over you when you turn back to him. And speaking of that one lost sheep, Jesus tells us how we should restore him to the church after he's been found. Reconciliation is a threefold process. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Here again is one of those areas in which we need to act like children. You know, if Nick offends Mac, Nick is my older, one of my older sons, Mac's my youngest son. If Nick happens, oh, it would never happen, but if Nick did somehow offend Mac, Mac doesn't wait a few days to mull over the situation. Mac doesn't spend time...
so personally, and the person doesn't listen, then you take two or three witnesses to talk to the person who sinned. Again, the desire is for reconciliation. That's the hope. But if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And here's step three. Bring the pressure of the whole body onto the wayward person in an attempt to wake them up and cause them to repent. And this doesn't necessarily mean a public rebuke. This could be reviewed by the leadership of the church acting on behalf of the rest of the body. But this is the last step. Take him to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So, you've gone personally. You've taken two or three. Nothing's worked. You bring him before the church or the leadership of the church. Still, the person's unrepentant. What do you do next? Then you remove that person from the church. And you treat that person as an unbeliever. Now, what does that mean? That means you keep loving him. That means you pray for him, probably harder than you did before. You're treating him now as an unbeliever. But you're treating him as an outsider, no longer as a functioning, fellowshipping member of the church. Over the years, we have had to, on occasion, take this final step. And I'm telling you, it is never easy. Even with excommunication or disfellowshipping of a person, reconciliation is always the goal. And in our experience, more times than not, the person that we've had to bar from fellowship has eventually repented and returned to the church, if not our church, certainly to the Lord and to another church. You know, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for putting up with blatant sin in their midst. A man in the church had been living in an incestuous relationship. And the Corinthians, believe it or not, were proud of their tolerance. Paul tells them to deal with the man, to boot him out of the body.
worshiping half-naked animists to born-again Christians. I mean, overnight. Now, every aspect of their lives has to be re-examined. I mean, do they continue to celebrate the tribe's traditional holidays? Now that they're Christians, how are the women supposed to dress? I mean, what clothes do they put on? What parts of their anatomy do they cover? What kind of food and drink and entertainment is now allowable for this tribe? When and how are they going to worship God? It's going to be much different from us. But but what form, what shape is it going to take in that culture and in that setting? You see, any time Christianity crosses cultures, practical applications have to be made. Church leaders have to bind and they have to loose based on biblical and loving principles. Are, Are you understanding this? You're getting it? The classic example of binding and loosing in the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 15. You remember God had saved the Gentiles just as he had saved the Jews by faith, not law. But how could Jews and Gentiles live in harmony when Jews were so easily offended by Gentile practices? A church council met in Acts 15 to decide this matter. And the result was binding and loosing. The apostles loosed the Gentiles from 609 of the 613 Jewish laws. But they left the Gentiles bound to four laws that prohibited behavior that was horribly offensive to the Jews. This called the Gentiles to walk in love. But it also gave them freedom to to live in Christ. Here's the point. Christian leaders need to step up and lead. We need to exercise the spiritual authority that we've been given to establish policy and to administer discipline. You see, when the lost sheep is found, we need to help him enter into the fellowship and become whole and become healthy. Well, in verse 19, Jesus encourages us to pray as a team. If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You know, I have four kids at home. Well, they're not all at home anymore. I used to have four kids at home. And seldom did they agree much on anything. In fact, at times, in those rare moments when all four kids agreed and they showed a little unity, I went out of my way to do whatever it was that they asked. I mean, just the fact they agreed on something. Yeah, I'll do that. That's fine. Everybody wants to do that. We'll do that. This is Jesus' point here, I think. Agree together. Find some common ground. Unite in Jesus' name and nature And your prayer will carry an extra punch. You know, in sports, athletes try to learn to play as a team. You know, one unit working in harmony is better than the sum of the parts. Well, likewise, Christians need to pray as a team. And when we do, God is anxious and eager to answer those prayers. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You know, the Jews said it took ten men for God to answer a public prayer. How did they get that? Well, you remember the story of Abraham when he prayed for Sodom. He prayed that God would spare the city if Abraham could find just ten righteous men. Thus, according to the rabbis, it took ten men for God to reveal himself in a public prayer meeting. But Jesus here, he disagreed with the rabbis. Jesus says all it really takes is two or three. If just two or three gather together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Just two or three. 
people gathered together in Jesus' name, and he promises to show up. To me, this is such an exciting promise. Did you know that there are big-name pastors and musicians that won't come to your event unless you guarantee them a minimum number of people? Did you know that? Oh, yeah, you've got that, you know, guarantee 500 people for them to come or 1,000 people for them to be there, whatever it might be. Praise the Lord, Jesus has no minimums. He says, if just two or three of you get together in my name, hey, you can, you can be assured that I'm going to show up and join you. In verse 21, Peter asked if it's enough to forgive your brother seven times. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Peter thought this was being extremely generous. The rabbis taught you that you had to forgive someone too maybe at the most three times. Peter thought seven times. I mean, that's, that's above and beyond. That's extremely merciful. But notice verse 22, Jesus tells him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to count, okay, that's 490 times I'm forgiving you. The next time you do it, I'm going to punch you out. It's not the point. Jesus is basically saying, if you're keeping count, you're missing the point. God has put no limits on how often he's willing to forgive us if we're truly repentant, has he? He's put no limits. Likewise, he doesn't want us to limit our willingness to forgive the people who sin against us. And Jesus uses a parable to illustrate this lesson. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That would be a sum of money like $10 million. I mean, that would be a huge sum of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Incredible. Can you imagine this? The master of the house writes off a $10 million debt. I mean, my credit card company won't remove the finance charges, you know, the, the late fees. This guy writes off $10 million. That's it. I want you to understand, this is outlandish. This is extravagant forgiveness. According to commentator William Barclay, the total revenue of the entire province of Judea in that day was 600 talents. We're talking a sum of money here of 10,000 talents. The master of the house is forgiving his servant a king's ransom. But that servant went out. And he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, one denarius equaled about 20 cents. Thus, a hundred denarii was about 20 bucks. And I, and I hope you see, Jesus is laying out a stark contrast here. A hundred denarii could be carried in your pocket. To transport 10,000 talents took an army of 8,600 men traveling with a 60-pound bag of coins over their shoulder. The difference here is staggering. 
Well, this guy goes out and he finds a man who's owed him 20 bucks. And he lays hands on him. And he takes him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Again, he's just gotten forgiven $10 million. Now he's going ballistic over 20 bucks. So his fellow servant fell down in his feet. Remember, that's what he did with the master of the house. He fell down before him. And he begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what, what had been done, and I mean, they couldn't believe it. They were very grieved. And they came and told their master all that had been done. I mean, they had to rat him out. This was, this was preposterous. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father, oh boy, listen to what Jesus says. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. And the point of the parable is obvious. God's forgiveness is so lavish. I mean, I mean, hey, God knows we could never pay him back for the debt that we owed him. God's grace cost him the blood of his own son. All he asks of us now is that we forgive others with the same generosity of which we've been forgiven. Makes sense? Fair enough. And notice, we're to forgive from our heart. So my Heavenly Father will do to each of you if you do not from your heart, you know, forgive your, your brother. We're to forgive from our heart. Have you ever apologized to someone and, and they kind of looked at you and they kind of mumbled, well, all right, I guess I'll forgive you. I'm a Christian, I've got no choice. But you're not really sure they forgave you. Real forgiveness, God forgiveness, God's forgiveness, it always comes from our heart. Chapter 19. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Notice the contrast. Jesus is all about healing people. The Pharisees are all about stirring up trouble. They want to argue. The Pharisees should have wanted to celebrate these healings. Instead, they come to debate, not celebrate. And they've even picked out their subject in advance. It was as controversial a subject 2,000 years ago as it is today. It remains a controversial subject. They want to argue about divorce. Verse 3. And saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Notice the phrase, for just any reason. These words reveal the Pharisees. They reveal that they were trying to draw Jesus into a theological debate that happened to be raging at that time. 
the debate centered around a single passage of Scripture and a single word in that passage. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, you should read it when you get home, stipulated that when a man divorced his wife for, quote, some uncleanness, that was the word, uncleanness, it was his duty to write her a certificate of divorce before sending her away. And the rabbis were debating the meaning of this word uncleanness. And there were basically two schools of thought. One was led by a rabbi named Hallel, the other by a rabbi named Shammai. Rabbi Hallel had a very liberal interpretation. He basically felt that anything constituted uncleanness. Burn your husband's dinner. It's uncleanness. Put too much salt on his food. Appear in public with your head uncovered. Talk to another man on the street. Show disrespect for your husband's parents. Sorry, honey. Don't like your mother-in-law? Practically any infraction would be considered an uncleanness. In fact, a rabbi named Akaba went so far as to say that if a husband found a woman more beautiful than his wife, he then could consider his wife unclean and justify his divorce. You know, the swapping the 40 for the 220s kind of thing. <clears throat> anyway. I don't know why I threw that in. Somebody said that to me this morning. That's why I threw that in tonight. I just, it was still in the back of my mind. The Pharisees who came to Jesus, they, they were asking him if he agreed with this Rabbi Hillel. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, the other school of thought, Rabbi Shammai, he limited uncleanness to one thing, sexual promiscuity. According to Jewish law, promiscuity that went as far as adultery, it wasn't punished by divorce, it was punished out. By death, by stoning. Stoning was the penalty for adultery. So that's not what Rabbi Shammai meant. According to him, uncleanness that resulted in divorce was any sexual indiscretion that stopped short of adultery. Immodesty, or a flirtatious attitude, or an indecency. And these Pharisees were trying to get Jesus embroiled in this debate. Verse 4 says, and Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now Jesus surprises them. Before he interprets Deuteronomy, he takes them all the way back to Genesis. He shows that God never intended for a divorce to occur in the first place. God's ideal, it was and it still is, is for one man and one woman to live together for a lifetime in a committed marital union. 
Malachi chapter 2 says it so clearly. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. I hope you see there, God is not ambiguous about this. God himself says, I hate divorce. It was never his intention. I like Sylvester Stallone's quote. After all those Rocky movies, he learned a little something about boxing. He made this statement. Boxing is a great exercise as long as you can yell cut whenever you want. <laughs> I would agree. But sadly, that's many people's attitude toward marriage. Oh, marriage is a great thing as long as you can yell cut whenever you want. For many people today, marriage is a revolving door. The phrase, until death do you part, has been substituted with words like, until something better comes along, or until it gets hard, or until I'm no longer happy. Married couples need to remember that though a wedding is an event, a marriage is an achievement. A good marriage, friend, doesn't just happen. It requires sacrifice and giving, hard work and effort, unselfish commitment and the willingness to forgive. And Jesus is saying, God intends for marriage to last a lifetime. Now the Pharisees, they fire back. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? In other words, if God is not in favor of divorce, why did the Mosaic law make allowance for it and give stipulations to regulate it? Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus say, is saying that the Jewish laws concerning divorce were not an expression of God's will as much as they were a concession to human willfulness. You see, Deuteronomy 24 was a concession to the hard hearts and stubbornness of people. When the hostility in a marriage got so intense that the only choice was killing each other or getting divorced, Moses said, all right, I'll permit divorce. The law in Deuteronomy was not a commandment, never was meant to be. It was a concession to man's hard-heartedness. Well, and to woman's hard-heartedness too. Sorry, girls. You're as capable as we are. Here is where both schools of thought were in error. Just because God allows divorce doesn't mean that He approves of divorce. In fact, the stipulations on divorce in Deuteronomy were intended to discourage divorce from taking place. If you go back and read in Deuteronomy 24, you'll find that before a man could divorce his wife, he first had to write a certificate of divorce. Before the law in Deuteronomy, all the man had to say was, you are no longer my wife, and the gal was to pack her bags and hit the street. I mean, it was as simple as that. But Moses made it more difficult to get a divorce. He regulated it. He said, no, you've got to write a certificate before you send her away. The law of Moses did three things. Deuteronomy 24 changed divorce in three ways. First, it established an official legal procedure. Notice you had to write this certificate. Second, that legal procedure necessitated a cooling off period. Again, to discourage divorce. You know, to obtain a certificate, you had to seek out a scribe. 
and you had to pay a substantial sum. It was all intended to be a deterrent. It required time, and it provided the two parties an opportunity to reconsider. And then the third thing the law in Deuteronomy 24 did is once a man had divorced his wife, he could never remarry her. Even if she became a widow by her second husband, there were no rewinds. He couldn't go back and remarry her. A rash divorce could never be rectified. Thus, Deuteronomy 24 was intended to postpone, not condone, divorce. It was intended to prevent it, not permit it. Verse 9 says, And I say to you, Jesus tells them, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now here Jesus raises the bar for his disciples. Understand, Moses made a concession to the hard-heartedness of man. For couples in the Old Testament living under Moses lacked the power of God's Spirit, the love of Jesus, the grace of the gospel to resolve conflicts. Thus God realized that there would be cases where they would either kill each other or get divorced. So he made a concession. But here's, here's the difference for us. We have no such excuse. Because we have the Spirit of God living in us. We have the love of God. We have the grace of God. A Christian should never have a hard heart. For we've been softened by God's grace. Our hearts have been tenderized by God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. So as far as Jesus is concerned, here in verse 9, the only legitimate allowance for divorce and remarriage among His followers is sexual immorality. The Greek word that gets translated sexual immorality is the word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. It's a general term used for all forms of illicit sexual activity, from adultery to homosexuality. Sexual sin is the only God-approved reason for a person to divorce their spouse and to remarry, according to Jesus in Matthew 19. You see, under the Jewish law, the penalty for adultery was death by stoning. Thus, if your spouse committed adultery then you would in inevitably be a widow or a widower. Thus you would be free. You would be a candidate for remarriage. Here Jesus reaffirms an offended party's option to remarry while at the same time showing mercy toward the guilty party. Now keep in mind, this doesn't mean that you have to divorce an adulterous spouse. Jesus never said that. Hey, in fact, with God's grace and with God's forgiveness... Even the damage done by adultery can be repaired if two people are willing. But if your spouse has been unfaithful sexually, divorce is a legitimate option. There is one other biblical justification for divorce and remarriage, and that is abandonment. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says there that if an unbeliever abandons their believing spouse, the believer is no longer under bondage and is free to move on with his or her life. This means that if you're divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality or abandonment and you have remarried, then you are living in adultery. 
incompatibility, irreconcilable differences. We decided to just be friends. Those are not biblical justifications for divorce and remarriage. And does this mean that God can't bless your current marriage? Not hardly. But here's what you have to do. If you've divorced for unbiblical grounds and remarried, and you want God's blessing on your current marriage, here's what you have to do. You have to treat your sin as you would any other sin. You have to confess it. You have to look back on the mistake you've made from God's perspective. You have to repent of it. You have to ask God for His forgiveness. Then you have to embrace God's perspective on marriage and divorce and begin to conduct your current marriage God's way. You can start over in a healthy marriage. But before you can start over in a healthy marriage, you first have to put a period on the former marriage. A lot of couples I talk to, they want to put a comma on the former marriage. And they just kind of carry over the same mistakes to the new marriage. No, you only have a mistake when you do that. You can't put a comma. You've got to put a period on the former marriage and the former attitudes that led to that divorce before you're free before God to start a new sentence. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Not, not at all. In fact, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all sin, including divorce. Understand this. God hates divorce, but He loves divorcees. And God is willing to give you a brand new start if you have a repentant heart and if you're willing to change your attitude and embrace His perspective and His desires for marriage. Understand that? Everybody with me on that? Let me just pause. Father, there are many people here tonight who have been divorced and are now remarried. And perhaps they look back now on their divorce and they see that though there were tough circumstances, their divorce was not on biblical grounds and they still carry guilt about it. Lord, I pray that tonight that they would seek your forgiveness. This is not the unpardonable sin. You want to forgive them. You want to free them. And I pray tonight, Lord, that they would seek your forgiveness and that in their heart of hearts, Lord, they would determine to, to, to renew their commitment to their current spouse and not make the same mistake again and seek to love their spouse through whatever might come. Lord, I pray that, that you, will, you will heal relationships in our church, Lord, that you'll bring couples back together. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen the marriages that, that now exist. Lord, help us to begin today to do things your way. And I know in doing so, we'll receive your blessing. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus has upped the ante, upped the expectations on marriage, hasn't he? And his disciples respond to this in verse 10. If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> I mean, they're not sure they can live up to these standards. And you know what? Without the Holy Spirit, they can't. And without the Holy Spirit, you can't. You know, I believe that God invented marriage 
with its high demands and high rewards to constantly remind us of our selfishness, to keep us totally dependent upon Him, to force us to maintain a humble and repentant heart because that's what it takes to make a marriage work. Jesus says in verse 11, All cannot accept this saying, I'm one of them, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Jesus is saying, okay, it's true. Marriage isn't for everyone. I'll never forget the Sunday morning. I was standing at the back door when an older fellow, a gentleman, had a woman by his side, was leaving the building that morning, and he introduced himself to me. He said, hello, my name is John Smith, eunuch of the Most High God. That's how he introduced himself. He went on and he rattled off a few other verses and all that I never really paid attention to. I still couldn't get past that eunuch of the Most High God thing. And I'm sitting there thinking, eunuch of the Most High, what, what are you, what is this? And the, and the only thing I, I could think to say to the guy was, I, I turned to the woman and I said, well, I guess she's your sister. I mean, it was just weird. I mean... I'm not doubting he was the eunuch of the Most High God. I just don't know why you go around bragging about it, you know. It was just weird. I mean, Jesus said, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. But not, all, not everybody's going to be able to accept this. I mean, Jesus said that. I mean, not everyone is going to be wedded to the idea of singleness. That was a joke. Wedded to the idea of singleness. Notice Jesus mentions three types of eunuchs. First are eunuchs by birth. These are not homosexuals. Jesus is talking about men with normal sex drives, but just with low sex drive. Low libido guys right here. Eunuchs by birth. Second are men who become eunuchs. You know, in the ancient Orient, Males serving in the court 